Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. I told you last week that last week uh, I was going to teach one message, one sermon, but it was going to take two weeks to do it. Um, And so today's the second part. If you weren't here for whatever reason for last week, um, I just uh, encourage you, you know, when you have a chance to uh, check the podcast out, just because you're going to be kind of hearing, you know, the second you're pick, you know, you're going to come into a movie like halfway through. You know, it can work, but it's better if you watch the whole thing. You know, so I'll do my best to sort of summarize what we saw last week, but I'm not going to, you know, reteach the whole deal because that's the whole point of putting it over two Sundays, so we don't have to be here for you know four hours. But um, we're, we're doing this 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 theme this, of Christianity all natural. As we're spending our focus this summer, uh, really working on of. What does Christianity look like when we strip away all the add-ons, all the stuff that had been added to Christianity uh, just for 2,000 years of church history? And we can go around the room, uh, and each one of us can share a word of, hey, yeah, this definitely in the group that I was part of, or what I thought, whether you were a believer for a long time or maybe just recently. It doesn't matter. Even unbelievers have picked up on add-ons to the, to the gospel. Um, I remember telling, uh, uh, talking with somebody not long ago about, you know, uh, Christ, and their, re- their response was, well, if I do that, then I would have to, and they start adding all these things. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? What, where, where'd that come in? And he just, all the stuff that he had heard, all the stuff that he had picked up on through religion for years and years. Another guy I remember talking with um, who was a, a believer, and he's just really wrestling with his salvation, whether or not he was truly born again or not. And he's like, well, I do this, and, and I don't do that enough. And, and one of the things was, you know, he, he gets drunk. And I'm like, dude, that's probably not a good idea because you're not under control. Somebody, something else is in control. But a liquid is not what keeps you from being born again. Your faith in the finished work of Christ is what gets you born again. Uh, not a liquid, uh, not time spent in a building uh, called church. Uh, it is Jesus plus nothing. And that plays out in our lives, of course, but there's just so many add-ons that have happened. And so we're just trying to strip all that back and say, what really is the gospel? And so we've been looking at the fact that we died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, these identity things. And then last week, we talked about, especially, uh, it was neat, or not neat, but it was uh, a God coincidence, I guess, um, that the whole uh, KKK thing happened in Charlottesville last week, because I was already going to be teaching on Ephesians 1 and 2 over these last two weeks, last week and this week, which has to deal with our new identity as one new man. 
the greatest uh, racial divide that I am familiar with in all of history is the divide between Jew and Gentile. And we're actually going to see hot and heavy why that is when we get down to verse uh, 12 or so in chapter 2. We did chapter 1 last week. We'll do chapter 2 today. So Paul writes a letter that we call Ephesians, the the book of Ephesians. Uh, But originally, the letter did not have a name. It was not to the Ephesians, to those in Ephesus. Originally, the oldest manuscripts of this letter just say to the saints. It was many years later, like hundreds of years later, in fact, when they added the phrase in Ephesus. Why did they do that? I don't know. But the, um, the point is, this was really originally a, a, a letter, general letter, that Paul sent out to the Galatian, I mean, excuse me, to the Gentile churches to explain to the Gentile churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, uh, you know, areas such as that, the uh, Gentile areas, of just what this, the context of them as Gentiles actually being brought into this thing of Christianity, just how big it really is. I mean, imagine you're a Gentile. It's not too hard to imagine because we probably most are. Uh, and all of a sudden, you're just minding your business. You, you, you have no clue about God, no clue about, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're just minding your own business, and all, the day, all of a sudden, a guy named Paul of Tarsus strolls into your town, and there's a hubbub of, you know, believe in this uh, Jewish carpenter, and you'll actually be saved from all your sins, and the Holy Spirit's being released, and people are being born again, and it's just this incredible uh, movement of God, but there's no context to all the stuff that happened before he showed up into your town. And so what Paul, I think, is doing, he's writing a letter to sort of, sort of show the, the years and years of context that the Jews had. They had God. They had a first covenant. They had a, a Mount Sinai. They had a long time history with God. But these Gentiles, they, never, they didn't have any of that until now. And so Paul is writing this letter to explain that you Gentiles and us Jews, we were nowhere, you know, close to each other. But now because of Jesus, we actually are one new united people by faith in Christ Jesus, which was the craziest thought of the day because of just how much the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. And that hatred, let's just be honest, I think it kind of continues into the 20th century at least, the 19th and the 20th century. You've got guys like Adolf Hitler who are killing millions of Jews. I think it was even worse up in Russia uh, with whatever that dude's name was. I don't, you know, whatever, huh? Stalin, you know. And so uh, there's something that that hatred has continued, but what we see Paul teaching in Ephesians 1 and 2 is that that very enmity, the thing that separated the Jew and the Gentile, has actually been abolished in Christ. And we're going to pick up on that and see what he's actually talking about. And here's what I want us to sort of think about as we walk through this. I would probably assume, though it's not always wise to assume, I would probably assume that not many of us in this room have this burning, deep racial hatred towards people of another race, another color, another culture? Probably not. I mean, there might be some, you know, difficulties, you know, but 
I would imagine that most of us would not have burning, you know, racial superiority because of a color, et cetera, over another people group, all right? Most of us, probably all of us, I would assume. So I don't want us to just read through this and be like, hey, this doesn't apply to me because, hey, I don't have a problem with, you know, people of a different race, different color, different people. What I want us to do is to broaden our mind a little bit and think of, okay, wait, Paul's immediate context, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, those who were in great hatred towards each other, being brought together as one in Christ, which we'll see this very plainly described. But what I want us to think about as we walk through this is, okay, I might not have hatred towards, you know, blacks, towards whites, towards, you know, Asians, towards whatever, but how many of us, now let's just be honest, how many of us struggle in the flesh with having very serious animosity against others in the body of Christ who have hurt us, who have sinned against us, who have lied about us, gossiped about us, betrayed us, etc., etc., and bringing that even home a little bit tighter, how many of us are in a relationship with someone that fits that bill and we even live with them, even share the same bed with them as our husband or as our wife, and we struggle at the deepest levels to really get to know them, to love them, because so much animosity over years have been built up between you and them. So there's some surface relationship, but that's about it. So I don't want us just to think about, oh, awesome, Jew, Gentile have been brought together one in Christ and miss a very clear opportunity for the Holy Spirit to show us that, wait a second, if God brought Jew and Gentile who could not be further apart together as one new man in Christ, then guess what he has brought you and your wife together as? You see that? Guess what he's brought you and your Christian brother and sister whom you have had a horrible um, a grudge against for the last 30 years because of something they did in college you see what I'm getting at? Let's don't, let's don't miss the opportunity to see just how okay you really are with another brother and sister, even if you are harbor, uh, harboring unforgiveness, animosity, even anger towards them. I'm going to go ahead and give the journey marker, which is weird, I know, but, I, but that doesn't mean we're done. Okay, uh, wow, that was quick. Um, it's this, um, if I can remember it, because I'm not in that part in the notes yet. Um, by making us okay with him, Jesus has made us okay with each other. Do you see that? By making us okay with him, the byproduct of that is, well, whether we realize it or not, we're actually okay with one another. And the question is, are we going to see that clearly enough, the fact that if I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, even I'll take Steve as an example because I love him so much, even if we have something between us, some sort of unforgiveness between us, here's the reality. As 
equally okay Steve is with Jesus because of Jesus and as equally okay with Jesus I am because of Jesus, Steve and I are actually equally okay with each other in the Spirit. We are one new man together. So if I realize that, if I see that, then when I look at Steve, where are these feelings of animosity and anger and hatred coming from? Are they coming from Christ? No. No. What's coming from Christ is because of what I've done, Walt, he is as equally okay with me as you are with me, and you two are equally okay with each other in the Spirit. You are joined together with me. And if I were to see that clearly, then guess what follows? The shedding away of all of that grudge, anger, animosity that I have towards him because of something he did against me 30 years ago, 30 minutes ago, whatever the story is, so that we can actually live in this world as we already are in another world. I told you in September we're going to do a series on marriage in the new covenant and how the two connect and relate. And this right here, what we're going to see today, is basically the, the, the beginnings of that picture. Because if I see, where's my wife? If I see how okay we truly are in Christ, if I really see that, then nothing in this world is going to uh, distract me from the truth of how okay I really am with her. Now, we both have to see that, or else it's going to be very frustrating. But that is maturity. That is Christian maturity, seeing just how one we are with each other because of Jesus, and then actually by faith being willing to live in that right now. So I don't want us to miss, because Paul's talking about race being reconciled, there's an application here for husbands and wives, friends who have hated each other for years to actually experience a reconciliation as well, who might be as white as you are, in other words, all right? So let's uh, jump in. If you remember from last week, Paul starts off with a lot of we's and us's. He talks about how we Jews, we who were first to believe in Christ, were chosen, we were blessed, we were forgiven, we were inheritors of the kingdom. We, it was all about we. But then he says in verse, I think, 12 or so of chapter 1, but now you, you, we never saw this coming. You have now heard, you have believed, and now you've been sealed with the very same spirit that we were sealed with, which is a promise of the inheritance. The inheritance that we Jews thought was all ours, well, dead gum it. Now it's yours as well, you. Well, who is the you? We're actually see today in chapter two who the you is. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we, I shared last week, it's Gentiles. We, us, was the Jews, you, Gentile. We, the first to believe, the Jews, but now you, unbeknownst, it was hidden, a mystery, but it's now gone out to you also. Um, and so Paul, even wrapping up chapter one from last week, he even prays for these Jews, uh, these Gentiles, who were, again, so hated by the Jews, and we'll see why later in chapter two, um, he, they were so hated by the Gentiles he ends up praying for them that they, the Gentiles, would see the fullness of their inheritance that they now share with the Jews who believe in Jesus. So here's an application. Instead of, you know, talking about your wife to somebody else, how about talking uh, to the Lord, praying to the Lord that your wife would have the eyes of her heart enlightened to see the great riches of her inheritance in him? Hmm, that's an idea. Doesn't that kind of squash the whole 
flesh wanting to just react and respond and retaliate against your wife or your husband, whatever the case might be. So again, let's don't miss the application here because he's talking about something that happened thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. Now, turning over to chapter 2, verse 1. This is where we're going to pick up. This is a very familiar passage with most of us. We've taught on this several times. He says, and you were dead. Who is you? Everybody together? Gentiles. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. I like how he says formally because there's identity he's going to get to in a second. You who are now in Christ, remember you heard, you believed, and you were sealed. You formally walked according to the course of this world, the kingdom of darkness, according to the prince of the power of the air, talking about the devil himself, the, the reality of sin, the power of sin, and of the spirit that is the attitude that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You w- formally walked, but that's not what you walk now. We'll get into that in a second. But see, here's identity that we've got to realize. We did walk in that before we were in Christ, but that's not what we walk in now. We, we might stumble into that. We might walk after the flesh once in a while or maybe two or three times an hour, but, but that's not who we are. We formally walked. And I like how he really makes this big deal of this world talking about you know the uh, kingdom of darkness because he's about to start talking about a whole other world talk, where he calls it the heavenly places. You used to walk around down here in Adam, but now you walk somewhere else in the kingdom of heaven in Christ, the last Adam. Then he says, so he said, you were dead, you walked, but then he says, among them, we too. So who's, who's he talking about here? We also, the Jews. And so Jesus, uh, uh, Paul is kind of having a, a confession of sorts here. It was very rare. Well, let me say it this way. Only somebody who has truly experienced the grace of God is able to say, you know what? I used to walk in the same filth that you used to walk in. It's, it's only when we experience the grace of God that we're able to really own that, to be, to, to be able to confess that. Because otherwise, we're trying to puff our own self up and say, oh, well, I, I was never such as I used to work for a guy. He said this all the time. Alcohol has never t- touched the lips of this Baptist preacher. I used to work for this guy. And all he's doing is trying to puff up himself to prove how righteous he is in his own actions. Hey, fantastic. You're missing out, but fantastic. But, but what is that proving? What is that revealing? What Paul is saying, Paul's been so radically transformed. He's saying, hey, look, we also used to live in that crap. We also used to live in the lust of our flesh. But see how he says here, formally? Does this mean that Paul never sinned a day in his life after he was converted? Of course not. Of course not. But he's saying that I formally walked in that. That's not where I walk now. I get, I get duped and I chase after the flesh at times. Who doesn't? But that's not where I live anymore. We formally lived, we Jews, we formally lived in lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, listen to this talk Paul is confessing, as Jews, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Who's the rest? The Gentiles. You see, you, you follow that? I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. 
just like you guys, the rest of the world, the Gentiles, we were no different. We were by nature following in the course of this world, by nature children of wrath. Think about what he's really getting at here. By nature, what nature is this? This is Adam's nature, the first Adam. The first Adam, the, Paul writes in Romans that because of his death, because of his sin, all who came from him were born as sinners, born spiritually dead, alienated, which he actually gets into in a little bit, but alienated from God. We were living in the lust of our flesh. We were by the nature of our daddy, Adam, we were children of wrath. What's this wrath? Death. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam, the day in which you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's the wrath that Paul is admitting he and all of his Jewish compadres were living in, even though they were the chosen ones, even though they were, you know, the Israelites, the chosen of God, before Christ, they were all as equally dirty as the dirty dog Gentiles. This is pretty revealing. And again, it's only by really coming to terms with Jesus and his grace that a Jew of Paul's standing, you remember, Pharisee of the Pharisee, was willing to even admit the wretchedness of his state before Christ. So we get this picture. You Gentiles, you were dead, but guess what? We were too. We were just in this one big pot of humanity called dead. And now here, verse 4. And I think, my opinion, verse 4, when he starts using some of these we's, I think he's starting to talk about, you know, we we Jew, we Gentile, we who believe, we the believers, okay? Because follow what he says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of who he is, because of his great love with which he loved us, and that us, I, I'm, I'm gonna take is us Jews and us Gentiles, us, this new group, the church, because of how much he loved us, um, even when we were dead, we, because he just said you were dead and we were dead. We're all dead. So I think he's talking about we, Jew and Gentile. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. For years and years and years, I used to, basically until about three months ago when I first started looking at this passage for this, I assumed that raised us up together with Christ means that Walt, when Walt was born again, he was raised up together with Christ, together with Christ, Walt with Christ, together. But from what we've known from last week and this week, from the context of Ephesians so far, who do you think the together with Christ is really talking about? Yeah, you see that? Jews and Gentiles who could not be further apart have been raised up together with Christ. You see that? A little nuance, a little different. It's a little more contextually accurate, I think. But these two people who could not be further apart are now together with Christ. You see, if it's just Walt, God raised Walt up with Christ, he didn't even need to say the word together. Because, I mean, just with Christ. 
But by using the word together, he's emphasizing that the Jew who was dead and the Gentile who was dead, upon hearing the message, believing the message, and being sealed with the Spirit, God raised us up, Jew and Gentile, together with Christ. And then he emphasizes, because he does not want these people to have anything added to the message. Because remember, already in the first century, things were being added to the gospel. Uh, many many Jewish uh, Gentile communities had these things called Judaizers coming around saying that, okay, you've got Jesus, that's great, but you actually have to add Moses to the mix. You have to actually become a Jew in order to be a believer. To which they were like, well, I definitely want Jesus, so I guess I'll take Moses too. And they lined up in front of, you know, the circumcision shack and they you know did whatever they had to do in order to become a jew crazy things but paul knowing that things had been added already already he is doing his little christianity all natural and interjecting this phrase here by grace you have been saved you see how he's already having to defend that this thing of salvation is not you doing your part and then jesus doing his part He's already defending, saying this is by grace. This is not of your working whatsoever. In fact, he says that in a verse or two later. So look at verse 6. So he, uh, he, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And look at verse 6. And not just alive, but raised us up with him. Now, again, I think us is this together, the Jew and Gentile who are believing in Jesus, raised us up with him and seated us with him, where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So let's notice the dichotomy here. He talked about how you were what in your transgressions? Starts with a D, ends with an Ed. Dead in your transgressions, following the course of what world? This world. Remember that? We saw this world. I think it was verse two or three, whatever it was. This world. And now he's saying, you have, he has made us not dead, but alive together with Christ and uh, raised us up, no longer dead in our iniquities, but raised us up and seated us with him in another world, in another place, another realm, the heavenly places in Christ. You see the dichotomy? See how he's showing the difference between what was you were dead in this world, but now you're alive, raised, and seated in a whole other world, the kingdom of heaven, the heavenly places. And, and this seated, getting to some identity, this seated, this seat right here is the only seat that matters. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to talk with folk about Jesus, and they, one of the things that they say all the time is, well, you know, I, I went to church, you know, for a long time. And I sat in a seat. I went to church. I got my row, I placed my rear in a seat, and so I'm good. Listen, I'm, I love that you guys come here. Uh, you don't have to come here. I love that you do come here. But this seat here in these chairs is not the seat that matters. We have to see that. This seat in these chairs or any church, any pew, in any place in the world is not the seat that matters. So if we think that we're a little bit closer to God because we came to church, fantastic. I'm glad you came. I really am glad you came. But this is not the seat that matters. The only seat that matters is the seat that he, by grace, not by you walking into a building, but he, by grace, raised you up to sit in, and that seat is at the right hand of God in heavenly places. Does that make sense? Come, 
bring friends. We want that because we want people to hear this. But let us not be duped into thinking that by attendance on a Sunday morning, we are working our way a little bit closer to Jesus. For it is by grace, not by your attendance, that we are saved. It is by grace that we have been made righteous, holy, and clean, not by us coming. The only deceit that determines who you are is not the church seat, but it's this seat that he has raised us up and placed us in. So we have to ask the question, why would God do this? I mean, let's take a time out. Why would God do this? Why would he, he already had revealed his plans for the Jews. Everybody knew that the Jews were God's chosen people. Why did he hold back on the revelation of the Gentiles? It's a good question to ask. Why did he not, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, why was he not crystal, crystal clear that this was going to be for everybody? I mean, he kind of made some hints uh, at it, if you go back and and look at it, but he wasn't clear. Why on Sinai did did he uh, enact a first covenant only with the house of Israel? Why was that not with the whole world? Why did he hold back the surprise, if you will, that would be realized in Christ. Well, I think verse 7 actually gives us a hint at that. Verse 7 says, um, yeah, so that. Why did he do it? Here's why he did it. So that in the ages to come, so think about all of eternity future. Think about a timeline that never ends. In the ages to come, he, God, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us, Jew, Gentile, us, in Christ Jesus. So why did God do this? I think it's because God, he, he wanted to show off. And you say, well, wait a second. Isn't that kind of egotistical to show off? Well, I mean, who is the only one in the entire universe that has the right and the ability and the uh, wherewithal and the credentials to show off? I guess it's God. I mean, he is the one that flung the stars into space. He is the one in six days created all that is. That's kind of showing off, okay? So he held back on revealing that this thing of grace and the new covenant was also for the Gentiles so that in the ages to come, he would be able to show off forever the great riches of his grace. See, it would be kind of graceful for him to save a single people group, the the measly Jews, and I say measly in the sense of population-wise, but how rich does God have to be in order to provide salvation to the entire planet? Do you see that? Even the ones, the Romans, the Gentiles, who put his son on the cross to be crucified so that in the ages to come he will show off the great riches to the onlooker the jews were 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 not far away the gentiles were far off the gentiles they looked clean relatively speaking they were behaved well they 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 were clean, relatively speaking. But the Gentiles, the Gentiles, they were filthy. They were now, we're not even going to get into the, the temple worship that the Gentiles did in all these pagan places. Uh, but they were just downright disgusting people. And so why did God choose to save the Gentile as well? To show off just how rich he is 
in his grace and his kindness. And again, verse 8, because there's already been add-ons, even in the maybe 20 years since Christ died, he writes this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. So he's having to, again, set the record straight already. We're trying to do that 2,000 years later, but he's doing it just like 20 years later. This is grace, 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 not a result of works so that no man may boast. It is not you becoming a Jew. It's Jesus. It's God's eternal plan that he had the Jew chosen. We all knew that, but he also had another group chosen, the Gentiles, and he was going to bring them together in one new man. For we, we who, I think this is we together, we the Jew, we the Gentile, we together in Christ, we are his workmanship. In other words, who else could bring the Jew and the Gentile together? No one could. There was a dividing wall between them, which we'll get into in a second. There was a dividing wall in between them that separated them. No one could bring the Jew and the Gentile together. Caesars tried. Uh, Alexander the Great tried. I mean, people. Uh, um, Darius tried. So ba- the Babylonians tried. The Medes tried. The Persians tried. So many people tried to merge the Jew and the Gentile together, but they couldn't. There was a dividing wall. And what Paul is saying, we are God's workmanship. He is able to actually tear down this dividing wall that stood between us and bring us into one new man. We are his workmanship. We're his craftsmanship. We were created by God for this purpose created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to work in, to walk in. And so it's bringing together is all God's work. And the Jew and the Gentile who were so far off from each other are now walking together in the work that God has prepared for them, us, to walk in. I mean, who can do this? Who can think this stuff up? Now look at verse 11. We got to hustle a little bit for time. He says, remember, therefore, okay, because this is the context. Remember, I started talking about Paul, this letter. It's a general letter that's just going out to church after church. He's like, pass these letters around. And, and so he's giving them the context of how, how everything was before they became, you know, born again in Christ and how just radical this thing is. And so he says, therefore, because of this context, because of what's all happened before, you know, the play started when it showed up on your door. Therefore, remember that formerly you, and who's you? The Gentiles in the flesh. So here's where we have the antecedent, though it's a post-ecedent, I guess, uh, but it's, the, it's defining who you is. You, the Gentiles, remember that you Gentiles who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that was a derogatory oh the uncircumcised we are the circumcised we are of abraham we are so there's this dividing division between them you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the hands by the hands uh, uh human hands remember that you you who you gentiles were at that time before Christ, you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That is who you were. What is Paul getting at? 
in, in essence, Paul is saying that you Gentiles, you had no old covenant. You had no Mount Sinai. You had no Ten Commandments. You had no 613 commandments of Moses. You had nothing. There was no conditional promise of if you do these things, then God's going to do these things. There was nothing for you to work towards. There was nothing for you to, to try to do in order to get a little bit cleaner, a little bit closer to God. So you were alienated. There was no hope for you in this world. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Something that's incredibly important for us to remember is that for us who are Gentiles, really, really, we, are, we either have the new covenant or we have no covenant at all. We had no old covenant. And this is Paul's whole point. It's either the new covenant or nothing at all because no Gentile had any rights to the old covenant. And if we were to go to Galatians chapter 3, we'd actually read that no Jew today has the old covenant because the old covenant came in at Moses and it continued until Christ came. And so the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, the 613 laws, that was just for a period until Christ came because of transgressions. And so Paul is saying that you either have this Christ, you, you either have Christ in the new covenant, or you have nothing at all. And that's why it's so frustrating that I spent so much of my life trying to do the old covenant, trying so hard on the outside to live up to the standards of a covenant that I was never even invited to participate in in the first place. But that's what religion does to us. It dupes us. It tricks us into simply a behavior modification plan instead of actually seeing this shared life that we now have with Christ within. But now in Christ, you who are formerly far off, you Gentiles, because you didn't even have any sort of relationship with God like the Jews had, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were dirty and distant, but now because of the blood of Jesus, you are now clean and you are now close. And in a certain sense, remember back last week to chapter 1, verse 4, he says, in him, uh, we, we Jews, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. In a very real sense, they didn't know it, but Paul now is saying, we didn't know it, but he actually chose you too. You Gentiles, you were chosen, we just didn't know it. He chose us Jews, but he actually chose you too but we just didn't know it. Now look at verse 13. I mean 14. For he himself, he, Jesus, is our, Jew Gentile, peace. He is our peace. What was it that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do? What was it that Darius couldn't do? What was it that Xerxes couldn't do? All of these these kings that tried their best to reconcile Jew and Gentile, what was it that they could not do? They could not bring actual peace, oneness, between the Jew and the Gentile. But Jesus, he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew, Gentile, into one. And how did he do it? This is the great crescendo. Zone in with me for a minute. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Okay, 
So there was a division. There was an act, uh, not actual, literal, uh, but there was, he's talking about this wall that divided Jew and Gentile that Jesus actually tore down. And in the tearing down of it now enables Jew and Gentile who are so far apart from each other to actually become one new group, one new man, as he'll call it. Well, what was this barrier wall? What was this dividing wall? Well, we don't have to guess. Fortunately, we can actually just keep reading in verse 15. And he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, enmity, the strife, the thing that separated us, he abolished it in his flesh. Well, what is it, Paul? Which is the law of covenant, of commandments contained in ordinances. What was it that was the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? The Mosaic law. So how is it that this Mosaic law that was ordained by angels, it was mediated by angels to Moses himself on top of Mount Sinai, how was that some sort of dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? Well, if you take the time to read Leviticus this afternoon, It'll be quite engaging, I promise. Um, There were laws such as no markings upon your body, including, specifically, tattoos upon your body. So you have a people group, the Jews, who have done their best to have no marking, not even a scar upon their flesh, and God forbid a tattoo upon their flesh, And then they step out of Israel, the promised land, and go over to, say, uh, Jordan, go up to, say, Syria, or, say, go over to Ephesus or even to Corinth. And guess what you're going to find, more than likely, especially Galatia, on every single, particularly slave, but even not, every single Gentile who is an active worshiper of their deity you're going to find scars of cutting themselves in worship of their deity. We saw that in the Old Testament, right? You're going to find uh, tattoos of that deity on their flesh in worship of their deity. And so you have this law that says if you have tattoos, if you have a scar, you are defiled. And we Jews are not going to scar and we're not going to tattoo our body. Therefore, we are not defiled. You Gentiles are defiled. We are clean. Do you see the barrier wall? Do you see that? Let me give another example. Food. Food. All right. A couple chapters, chapter and a half devoted to what kind of food you can eat and you can't eat in the dividing wall, the barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. Basically, if the animal um, chews its own cud, a cow, you can eat it. But if it doesn't chew its own cud, then you cannot eat it, a pig. So pigs are dirty. They're defiled. If it has split hoof, you can this. But if it only has a hoof that does this, you can only do that. All these rules and regulations and ordinances contained in this law of commandments that drove dividing walls between them. Fish. 
As long as it had scales, then you could eat it. But if it didn't have scales, then you cannot eat it. So you leave Israel because you got to go, you know, on some business. And you go over to, say, Damascus. You go somewhere. And they're having a, you know, good old country um, crawfish and uh, Louisiana um, uh, catfish fried party. And you're thinking to yourself, they're eating defiled catfish and crawfish and shrimp, a shrimp cocktail. How defiled they are. For I only eat salmon, I don't know, whatever, tilapia. And so the dividing wall, look at you who are eating this defiled stuff. You are defiled. And what does Jesus actually shine light on this? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what's coming out from his defiled what? Heart. Sloppy pork pork Joe? No way, you Gentiles, you defiled, wicked people. Do you see that? The laws and the commandments created a barrier between the two. Last example, so we can move on. But I want us to see this. What about sacrifices? Okay, let's say a Jew does own up to the fact that he did something wrong. Uh, you know, somebody slipped a shrimp into a salad. It's like, I didn't realize it was there, and he ate it. Well, the Jews had a form of uh, uh, something to help them become pure again in their mind, and it was their sacrificial system. So they bring in a sin offering, they bring in an offering for that, whatever it needed to be, whatever it looked like, and they would be clean because of the sacrifices. Well, what sort of sacrificial system did the Gentiles have to clean them of their sins? You see that? They had nothing. And so by not even having a cleaning system for their sins, they were even defiled further. And that's why Paul says, with no hope. You had no hope. You had no covenant. And so this dividing wall, the law was a dividing wall separating the Jew and the Gentile to the point where the Jew wouldn't even touch the Gentile. So he abolished this thing of the law in his flesh, bringing it to nothing by fulfilling it, so that in him, in himself, in Christ, he might make the two, Jew-Gentile, who are so opposite, so opposed to one another, into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it, it the cross, having put to death the enmity, which was the law, by removing it completely. So what portions of the Mosaic law did Jesus put an end to? Well, there's the debate over 2,000 years of church history. Well, he put it into this portion of the law, but not this portion of the law. Well, let's just read what Paul says. It seems pretty clear. He put an end to the entire dividing wall. And he came to preach peace to you who are far away and peace to us, us Jews who were near. For through him, we both, Jew Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you 
you Jews, oh, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers. That's what they were. You're no longer aliens, but you Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, which Craig just spoke about earlier. That's their new identity. These Gentiles who are so far off, so far away, are now together, fellow citizens with all the Jewish saints who believe. In these last two verses, so cool. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the ones who came before to share this stuff, being built on their foundation. And of course, the ultimate foundation is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now, what's a cornerstone? We don't really use cornerstones today, but in buildings back then, the very first stone that they would set was what they called the cornerstone. And they would spend so much time making sure this first stone is perfectly square, perfectly uh, set, because every single other stone is going to be placed off of that stone. So if that stone was off even a degree or two, well, you go down 20 feet and you're going to be off by a foot or more. You see that? So this cornerstone had to be perfect. It had to be true. It had to be in the exact right place, the exact right seating, because everything else was built off of that. So think of it this way. However right the cornerstone was, that's how right all the other bricks were. Does that make sense? However true the cornerstone was, in the exact same way, that's how true all the bricks that come off of it are going to be. And Paul says that Jesus is our cornerstone. And we, he says in the next verse, in whom the whole building being fitted together, Jew, Gentile, together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up together into the dwelling house, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So get this picture. In this new reality, the heavenly places where we have now been seated, there is this perfectly pure, perfectly true cornerstone, Jesus, and you and I being fitted together, Jew, Gentile together, are bricks. Paul talks about it as living stones being built off of him. So if the cornerstone is true, if the cornerstone is perfect, if the cornerstone is true, right, what's the brick going to be that's built off of it? You see that? It's going to be true. It's going to be right. It's going to be perfect because it's built off the cornerstone. And what Paul is saying is this is the new reality. You were, and we Jews the same, were far away, far off. You didn't have anything. We at least had the old covenant, but you didn't have anything. Following the course of this world, dead in our iniquities, following the as children by wrath, the nature of God, the, the, the wrath of God, it was terrible. But now, because God is rich in his mercy, he has placed Jesus as this perfect cornerstone, and he has placed you and the Jew together as a new man right off of the cornerstone. And so we can now look at this, and if Paul is telling us the truth, we can come away with some assumptions. And that assumption number one is, 
If, we ha- if we're going to believe there's something wrong with who we now are in the new man, in the new heart, if we're going to believe that there's something wrong with us, we have to also believe there's something wrong with the cornerstone. You see that? If we're going to believe that we have a dirty, rotten heart, still prone to iniquity, still prone to sin, then we have to believe that Jesus has the same because we are built off of him. So however true, however pure, however righteous Jesus is, our cornerstone, that's how true, that's how righteous, that's how pure you are being fitted together into this new house, this new temple of living stones where God now dwells. Not in a building, but actually now in us. And this is our journey marker, which I've already mentioned. It is in making us okay with him, Jesus actually makes us okay with each other. And if he can go as far as by destroying the dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile and reconciling them into one new group, us and the Jew, into one new man, the new temple, the living temple, don't think of bricks and mortar, think of the body of Christ. If he can do that with those who are so far apart from each other, then guess what? I'm pretty sure he can also reconcile those of us who are struggling in relationship with another believer, especially, whom we're really not having a very enjoyable time with right now. Just call it what it is. Whether it be, as I said earlier, someone who you are married to, someone who you work with, someone who you go to church with, someone who is in your family, whatever that looks like. The choice I think that we have to make is, am I going to believe what the truth really is? Am I going to believe that my wife, for example, who is, uh, we're having some major issues right now, but am I going to believe that she is as true, as right, as perfect as the cornerstone is, and as equally as I am because of this grace being shown in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus? Am I going to believe that? Because if I'm going to believe it, guess what? I'm going to actually sort of probably walk in that. I'm going to filter all of the thoughts and all the condemnation that comes in my mind against her. I'm going to filter that for what it truly is, the attack of the enemy against her in my own mind. And I'm going to put to, you you quoted this earlier, Eugene, I'm going to take those thoughts captive and I'm going to set them aside, filter them out for what they are, filth from the enemy. And I'm going to choose today to believe the truth about who my wife is being built off the same cornerstone that I'm built off of. And that revelation, if it was able to bring the Jew and the Gentile together into one new thing, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be able to bring you and your spouse, you and your child, you and your parent, you and whomever together in a serious form of reconciliation. To make sure we have time for discussion, if you want, let's just quickly see what we saw today. All believers, all believers, Jew-Gentile, it doesn't, that's why Paul says there is no Jew-Gentile anymore. All believers have been raised up together with Christ, even together with those whom we struggle to like. That's the reality of it. That is the truth of our new uh, union. Even those who we on the flesh struggle to like, we're actually raised up together with Christ. Here's one, oh, sorry. Here's one that is a little bit difficult for us to really embrace. God loves the one you struggle to love the same as he loves you. 
And isn't that what the Jews were dealing with? The Jews were, were struggling with this message because they said, how, how can God love those Gentiles? I mean, look at them. How can he love? That's why they called the council, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. How can God love them the same way he loves us? I mean, we're his chosen people. We are of Abraham. We are of Isaac. We are of Jacob. How can he love them the same way he loves us? Well, it's because God wanted to show off his kindness and his grace for all of eternity in Christ Jesus. So whether you realize it or not, whether you're willing to embrace it or not, God loves the person that you're struggling to love. He loves them as much as he loves you. I think that's pretty powerful. What does that motivate you to do? Does that motivate you to hate them? No, it does not. It motivates you to live in this new life that you've been given and offer the same forgiveness towards them that has been offered to you. And I like this last thing we saw, equality. We talk a lot about equality, and we should. Equality, it's not just a right, and it is a right. All men are created equal. It is a right, but it's not just a right. We have to see that it's a reality in Christ. In Christ, our equality is a reality. There is no Jew, no Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor uh, um, uh male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's not just a right, but it's a reality. And we ought not wait for the government to try to force this reality. We, the body of Christ, should just live in it. If we're in Christ, if someone who we don't really tend to in the flesh like is in Christ, it's time for us just to kind of get over it. And to realize that the same love towards us is the same Lord's love towards them and allow that love that we receive from the Father to actually change our mind over time to now embrace the very one whom we've struggled to love. And again, that might not be race. That might just be your wife. That might be your cousin twice removed who threw a moon pie out the window that you were going to eat. I don't know, whatever that looks like. Let us not let this just pass us by thinking it's just applicable to race relations. Yeah, it is. But man, we are one new man in Christ. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.